building a foundation for tomorrow's naval aviators. The Bell 407GXI is the next-generation advanced helicopter training system, offering exceptional value and proven reliability. See the Bell 407GXI in action at Navy League's Sea Air Space, booth 2623. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach and Marketing at the Naval Institute. Joining me is my sometime co-host, Bill Bray, who is the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hello, Ward. We have a very special edition of the podcast today. We say that every time that our guests are actually in-house with us, Um, but this is uh, indeed special among specials. But before we get to them, let's talk about the annual meeting. To my eye, maybe one of the best in, in, in several years. Um, I've heard that a lot from a lot of people who attended. I was, um, uh, this is my first annual meeting as an actual staff member of the Naval Institute, um, but it was a, a big success. I think the uh, two, uh, th- three things about it that st- stood out, I think, to many people. One was the strategic plan. Um, which uh, was presented, um, and a lot of work went into that, and it takes the Naval Institute from today forward to 2023, five-year strategic plan. Uh, the pre- presentation by the CEO, uh, Admiral Pete Daly, um, on where we are, where we're going, and particularly with the capital campaign plan that includes our conference center, but not only our conference center, and the video of the conference center was shown. Uh, a farewell to Admiral Stavridis, who has served as the uh, chairman, cha- of the board. chairman of the board of the of the Naval Institute for six years, and uh, introduction that's a statutory. He's he he has to. It's he doesn't want to, but he has to. That's right. By the term bylaws. limits. Term limits. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. And um and the uh, and now I've forgotten what the other uh, <laughs> the takeaway was, but it was Ellen Lord. Uh, Ellen Lord's speech was 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 terrific. Um, she really uh was. You know, sometimes you get the uh, VIPs in, and they they kind of stay in the fluff fluff zone a little too much and uh, but she was uh, got down into the details on what she's doing and, and was uh, uh, took questioners on head on with with very specific answers on, on how she's trying to improve the uh, uh, Department of Defense's acquisition process. Yeah so for those who don't know um, Ellen Lord is the Undersecretary of Acquisition and Sustainment for the Department of Defense um, and so she really did demonstrate sort of extemporaneously just how much she knows. I mean, she's in the weeds, um, and that's impressive for a political appointee like that. I've never seen a person in that position who knows as much just at her fingertips in terms of contracting, in terms of strategy, in terms of big picture, um, you know, and the, uh, everything. It, it was very impressive. I thought she was really good. Absolutely. And the thing I forgot, which was the awards presentation, which had several um, excellent awards um speeches, but most notably was the family of uh, Schumacher, who wrote the um, uh, Naval History, uh, won the uh, was Naval History Author of the Year, and uh, with his article uh, last spring um, to Helen Back, he was a member of the Pueblo crew and was um, held by the North Koreans, um, suffered a lot along with all the other crew members, and uh, unfortunately passed away in May um, of last shortly after the article was published and his um he was represented by his son and his stepdaughter and they were very very um 
appreciative and a very emotional moment there when they're up there accepting the award. Yeah, it was poignant. They really did capture his personality. You could tell there was great love. Um, and that was really a cool moment. Um, and then also there was a member, a guy who had been on the crew, a civilian oceanographer, was also present. Um, so that was really a, a, a amazing moment. And that's kind of what you get at the annual meeting. So good good time. And uh, if you missed it, uh, then we hope to see you uh, next year. You know, it's not something to be missed. Uh, what else we got before we get to our guests? Um, it's May. It's commissioning month here at uh, the Naval Academy. A lot of events. It's going to get quite busy. Um, our Naval uh, Academy intern program is about to kick off in a few yep. weeks uh, with the first tranche of uh, midshipmen who will be uh, immersed here at the Naval Institute for uh, three and a half weeks or so each. Yep. Um, three blocks. Second summer we're doing that. We're very excited. We met the first one, came in and did his initial check-in this morning. Um, he's a rising second class that uh, wants to be a marine aviator, so uh, that, that's a good choice. And my, my father would approve of that choice. <laughs> um, and so we're, you know, th- it's good to have young folks roaming around Beach Hall with us. It's, it really does uh, keep us on our our best game here. So we're looking forward to another busy summer. Yep, and we'd love to do it with ROTC units, but there's some real challenges with that because of their the way they're put on orders and paid yeah the r is for reserve yes right and so we they only have one block of training during the summer and after that there it's not funded so um we're trying to figure out some workarounds you know pete daly our ceo as you mentioned is a holy cross nrotc guy um, so he certainly would like some nrotc folks uh, in the mix and not just academy people uh, we're also trying to get the coast guard academy involved and we got to them with that idea too late this year but they definitely were uh, interested. So I, I, you know, am confident that we'll probably have some Coast Guard cadets in our internship program next summer. So, you know, crawl, walk, run. We're, yep, we're getting going yep. on a bunch of things here. Um, so uh, so it's great. We're, we're looking forward to it, including the Blue Angels. Um, and I think this will be the – maybe next year will be the last year they're flying the regular Hornet. By the 2021 season, they'll have Super Hornets. So uh, that's something that's coming up fast as well. And we hope to – not to tease out something that may not happen, but get a Blue Angel on the podcast while they're in town this yes. time. So we'll work on that. We're not making any promises, but we are thinking that maybe this could happen. That's right. So, so stay tuned for that. All right. So the May issue of uh, the magazine has just hit the streets. It's our annual naval review issue. And as usual, it includes the roster of all the services – by lineal number and uh, the organization of DOD. It's a really cool reference issue in, in, in terms of that part of it. Um, we have annual reviews of every warfare, especially in every branch of service, et cetera. But our guest today can be found in an article on page 56. Uh, it's by Commander Christopher Nelson, who's here with us. Uh, it's called A Naval Strategist Speaks, and that naval strategist is, in fact, retired Navy Captain Peter Schwartz, who's with us as well. So we thought we would just do this in a, uh, not to replicate exactly the article in the magazine, but why don't we just hand it over to you, Chris, and, and uh, you, uh, you, you take it away with your chat with, uh, with Peter. Hey, thanks, Ward. Thank you very much, Bill, for having us here. So last year, I published a piece, an interview with Captain Wayne Hughes, a Naval Postgraduate School, and, and of course, the author of the third edition, second and first edition of Fleet Tactics. And then I asked Fred Rainbow after that was published, I said, who, before he retired, the former editor-in-chief of Proceedings, I said, hey, who, who do you want to see in the magazine before you leave the magazine? Who's someone that's interesting to you that you've been here for so long? And 
And then Fred says, Chris, I want you to talk to Peter Swartz. Uh, this guy is an amazing naval officer. Um, he's been around for a long time, and he's been very influential behind the scenes. And I'll be honest, I didn't know a lot about Peter. I hadn't read much about Peter's work or read much of his work and have seen him mentioned in a few publications. So I was like, okay, this sounds great. And so I contacted Peter via email, as I usually do with a lot of my interviews, and said I pitched the interview to him. He was, he was gracious and said, I'm excited. I want to do this. And so then we started emailing back and forth questions and had a very long phone conversation, what turned into around 78,000 words, which is now around 3,000 words in the current issue. And what I found astonishing was the first thing I learned about Peter was this man never had a warfare designator in the United States Navy, yet uh, you served with some of the most important people in our government to include Colin Powell, Secretary Lehman. So Peter, just for the audience, I mean, this is one of the things that struck me. How, how did you, how did you? you know, do that? How did you just as a, as kind of a brief synopsis of that beginning point, um, how did you get to a point where really important people were asking to work for them, but you had no, frankly, no designator experience? Uh, well, uh, first of all, thanks to the Naval Institute and you, Chris, for uh, having me yet again and have to, having to sit through me uh, talking about <laughs> this stuff yet again. Um, so, uh, you got to think back to uh, the era in which uh, I was uh, entering college, which was the uh, end of the 50s, beginning of the 60s. Um, the draft was uh, was on board. Vietnam hadn't happened yet. Uh, and all of our, I and my contemporaries, our fathers had all served or had some relationship to World War II. And in my particular case, my, my dad, um, my dad was a failed draft dodger. He tried everything he could to not go in, right? Uh, I, he, he, he got married. He had me. Uh, he, uh, he went to work in an war industry, and, and they got him. And uh, off he went, a failed draft dodger, PF private, and then later private first class, Leo Swartz, and uh, he was part of Patton's Fourth Army uh, storming across France. Uh, he was wounded seriously uh, uh, in uh, in uh, eastern France and spent the remainder of the war a little bit after in a hospital in England. And what he learned from that experience, and he was a war hero. He won a Bronze Star at a time when the Bronze Star was not something that private first classes got. Uh, it, it wasn't uh, it, it was it wasn't candy. It was uh, a real thing for some real actions. And uh, he learned from that that first of all, you had to go in. And second of all, well, you don't want to be a private first class. And so he instilled that in me. And probably the very last thing that he ever made me do uh, before I, as an adult, was doing things on my own uh, was join Navy ROTC at Brown University. But I wasn't particularly oriented toward the military. And I liked the idea of being a contract employee because it was an only, only a two-year commitment. And uh, so I turned down the scholarship, didn't want it. Uh, I served with a whole bunch of people who were on scholarship, but I had, uh, this is Providence, Rhode Island, which was in the grip of the unions during the 1960s, and this was of great benefit to me because I was an ethnic guy from Providence. I knew my, around, my way around, and I baked bread every summer and made a fortune uh, as a member of the Bakery and Confectionery <laughs> Workers Union. Uh, and uh, I, actually, they gave me a card for this, right, a, a life membership. And they told me that never lose this card because if I ever wanted to come back and bake bread again, 
that that I should I should if I had this card they they take had me to in. Take you. Yeah, so yeah. I destroyed the card immediately upon graduation. <laughs> I I didn't want to have to go back and bake bread again, and uh, so there I was. Uh, Ensign Swartz graduated from Brown, not particularly interested in the naval career, but had a commitment. But I knew I wanted to do something having to do with international relations, and I knew I wanted to serve the government, and I wanted to serve the American people, and that. That was a constant. I mean, it's a constant today. And so I asked to go to graduate school and the Navy said yes, because, you know, these, these, these policies change uh, and they're, they're almost on a sign curve. And at this particular time, they were saying yes to those questions. And there are various areas when they did. And then there are other eras. And I'm not an expert today, so maybe today's era is no. Um, but the era then was yes. And off I went to graduate school. Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, NITSE School today uh, in Washington. And uh, then when I was done with that and the master's degree work, I had to serve. And I talked to, I guess, detailers. I didn't even know who they were. Meanwhile, the clock was ticking. So I wasn't an ensign anymore. I was a JG, except I'd never really done anything except been a graduate student. (laughs) And I was only going to stay in for a couple of years. And from the they looked at me and said, well, gee, we, there's not much we could do with this guy anyway. Uh, so because of my graduate school, they sent me out to Coronado, California to teach people going to Vietnam, um, international relations, sociopolitical subjects, Buddhism, uh, counterinsurgency theory. And uh, I would do that for two years and get out. Okay. Drove across the country. It was terrific. Went to Coronado. Before, before there was a bridge in Coronado. Yeah, Coronado, before there was a bridge. Yes. And, and it was a, there was a nickel snatcher, right? There was a ferry. And uh, uh, for any uh, really old timers uh, who are listening to this, uh, you'll remember the nickel snatcher. Um, anyway, so I was there at Fib School Coronado, and every single member of the staff had come back from Vietnam, which is why they were there on the staff, to teach the next group going, except me. Um, there was a famous wedding of a good friend of mine, Gary Zuka and his wife, Carol. And uh, they were all there resplendent with their, web, with their ribbons and, uh, and, and, uh, and medals. And uh, there I was with one National Defense medal. And we were all in big medals, right? So, and uh, my friends all said, this, is, this won't do. So they dressed me up. I had like 12 National Defense ribbons, <laughs> uh, medals. And uh, the senior officers frowned on that. So I got in a lot of trouble for that. Uh, but then I'm a lieutenant, right? So I'm lieutenant, I, I, I'm lieutenant Swartz. And I couldn't stand it. I said, yeah, I know I was trying real hard to avoid a four-year commitment, but I can't do this. Send me to Vietnam and I'll extend. And a very wise chief named McCombs said to me, Mr. Swartz, let's sit down and figure out how you ought to do this. I had a, we, when he was done with me and I was done with him and he communicated to the Bureau, we had a, uh, uh, a nine-month pipeline created for me for a 12-month tour in Vietnam, <laughs> right? That was my extension, right? And uh, it was great. It was 16 weeks of uh, psychological operations school at Fort Bragg where I dealt with the uh, uh, special forces and uh, there was uh, 12 weeks of language school, which made me uh, twice as fluent as any other American Navy advisor who only had six weeks of language school. Uh, and then there was weapons training in SEER, and off I went to Vietnam. And I knew everybody because the, all of the other advisors had been students of mine. I just missed John Kerry, who probably had been one of my students. Um, but by the time I got there, he'd already uh, done his bit. Remember, he was only in country for about four months. 
most of which was in com- much of which was in combat. Uh, but but uh, after that, he was back in the states. So by the time I got there, he'd already been there and, and come back. Whole uh, whole carry thought we may pick up the, that's another stream <laughs> later. Um, so I was in Vietnam and uh, I was happy. I was where I wanted to be. I was learning stuff. I was using my Vietnamese. I was learning about the war, counterinsurgency. I was an advisor with the Vietnamese Navy. I worked for some terrific American and one in particular terrific Vietnamese commanders and uh, some uh, terrific Vietnamese colleagues and some that weren't so terrific. That's why we there was a war and that's why there were advisors. Uh, and being an advisor was somewhere between difficult and impossible. And I was learning how to do that. And that fascinated me. My failures as well as successes. So, so, so in, in, the, in the interview, we talked about a lot of senior officers you worked for and, and unfortunately couldn't dig into each one. And I, I wanted to pull the string on one of the questions I had for you. Uh, you know, so General Powell, when he was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, you worked for him. You worked for Admiral Zumwalt. Mm-hmm. You, you worked for Secretary Lehman. I wondered if you would be willing to share a few anecdotes about some, you know, starting with the first admiral you ran into, I think, in Vietnam who, who kind of pulled you along. It was that first kind of, you know, that, that experience or that uh, offer to continue to work for very senior officers and it kind of built upon itself throughout your career. You seem to be, succeed very well at doing stuff very well for very senior officers in the sense that you figured out what they needed, whether it was writing a strategy, whether it was crafting a message, or whether it was communicating very clearly. I thought that was very impressive during our conversation. I wonder if you could expound upon that a bit. Let me try to focus on anecdotes about each of the three okay. that you mentioned. But also let's talk about the, so how did this work? What what do you think was the secret to your success with these very, very different people and so on and so forth? You're one of a kind. Yes, yeah. yes, Peter. Um, <laughs> so uh, so Admiral, Admiral Zumwalt's staff knew of me and knew of things I had done out in the field and they ordered me to Saigon. In Vietnam. Yes, yeah. in Vietnam. And they, I was ordered to Saigon. I didn't want to come to Saigon. Um, I uh, didn't want the orders. I wanted to be where I was, doing what I was as a political warfare advisor uh, and sometimes psychological operations officer for U.S. Navy and Vietnamese Navy units in what the Vietnamese call the Fourth Coastal Zone. So when you say things that you had done, um, what give us sort of a, the nature of those things? Well, what, being a political warfare Winning hearts advisor, and minds and... Yeah, I, I ran uh, and scheduled and ran medical uh, med caps and den caps, medical and dental uh, civic action uh, programs. Uh, I was the guy with the loudspeakers who came, brought them on down to the pier. I mean, I remember this, lugging the loudspeakers down to the piers and the, the, the PCF captains all looking at me, glaring at me, wondering who the Stucky was going to be that day because I was going to come and have them draw fire based on my uh, loudspeakers. And my loudspeakers were telling the Viet Cong to turn themselves in, Chu Hoi, uh, become uh, good citizens of the Republic of Vietnam. They'd get the Vietnamese equivalent of 40 acres and a mule, and they ought to do this. And uh, while this was great psychological operations theory, uh, in practice, the skippers of the boats only thought of the fact that we were drawing fire. Right, and there's a picture <laughs> um, on page 57, though, I want to point out to the audience that if when you pull up your, your copy of the proceedings, that there's you standing with some South Vietnamese officers holding a pig. Is that yeah. that's correct? That's my combat pig, yes. So uh, there's plenty of pictures of people from Vietnam I'm holding all kinds of weaponry, and there I am holding a, a landrace pig. <laughs> um, now, I'm, I'm a Jewish boy from Providence, Rhode Island, so th- this is kind of um, out of character in many ways. Um, but So here was the deal. Well, you're just and, holding the pig. You're well, not eating the pig. Not yet. Yeah. Oh, okay. And much to the chagrin of my wife, who's here today, um, who later on, who I met, um, who was fascinated by the fact that I had these beautiful pigs. <laughs> 
so on, but that's another story. <laughs> anyway, so uh, part of Admiral Zumwalt had taken over. Uh, among other things, he'd sent uh, famously the, the swift boats into the rivers. John Kerry was part of that. He uh, did some heroic things, uh, but turned violently against the war later on, uh, and probably was against the war while he was there, but I didn't, I have no special knowledge of that. Um, and what we were doing at that time was also turning stuff over to the Vietnamese. And the Vietnamese uh, were recruiting press gangs, actually, uh, thousands of new sailors into a Navy that was growing to be, I don't know, 40,000. And uh, they didn't know what the hell they were doing. And they were deserting like flies. And Zumwalt came to the Vietnamese Navy leadership and said, why is this? And they said, well, geez, um, these bare bones bases that we have have nothing for their families. Their families can't live there. The families are back in wherever town they've come from. And all they want to do is leave being on this base and get back and, and see what their families are doing and try to take care of the families. Zumwalt said, well, what's what's a big problem? I mean, this, this this country's rich in food and this. Yeah, but the food isn't on the base. The base is a big cleared area that Seabees have just built or something. Oh, well, uh, let's start a bunch of pig farms to provide protein for the Vietnamese Navy. And you can just see the reaction of the ComNav 4V staff to having to do that. I mean, how the hell are we? Um, shows up on my doorstep in Antoy, a team of guys who are telling me hey, we're going to do this. And uh, you're, you've been picked to be the guy with the pilot program of the pig and chicken program. We're, you're going to help the Vietnamese. They didn't say help. That's important. You're going to raise pigs and chickens for the Vietnamese. And I said, I'm a lieutenant. Aye, aye, sir. I'm a reservist. Um, I did not say aye, aye, sir. I said, we're going to lose the war. You guys are doing it wrong. I studied this stuff, taught this stuff, and I'm now doing this stuff. Have you talked to any Vietnamese in their Navy about this? No, we were told to get down and see you. I said, great. So the Americans in Saigon have told an American in Antoy to start a pig program, and somehow this is going to help the Vietnamese Navy, and they don't know jack about it. Two things happened. Number one, we did establish the first pig farm, and you can see me and the Vietnamese commander uh, in living black and white in the, uh, in the, special, in the uh, special report in the May issue. Um, but more, and he later uh, turned into a mentor and a, and a good friend of mine. Um, but but uh, I got ordered to Saigon. Uh, I thought, and because of my bad attitude and uh, and the fact that I, I I was different apparently from the others or whatever, and uh, I wound up working for Admiral Zumwalt. I didn't want to come to Saigon. Saigon was full of women. Everybody had a girlfriend. I was interested in helping fight a war. Saigon was full of staff pukes. I wasn't a staff puke. I came over to be on the boats. And uh, Saigon was full of, I'm seeing Bill's ring there, uh, full of uh, lifers from the Naval Academy. Oh. And this certainly wasn't uh, who I had intended to spend. I was an Ivy Leaguer, right? I was from Brown, oh. you know? Um, so that all crashed and burned within a couple of weeks. Uh, I met a girl. She's sitting, what, about 10 feet away from me right now? We're <laughs> In a couple of years, we'll celebrate our 50th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Um, yeah, congratulations. Thanks. Uh, I learned something very important about myself after a few months, which was I was really good on a Navy staff. Now, of course, nobody cares in the Navy whether you're good on a staff or not. That's not the point. Um, but I was good at it. I was a lot better than I'd ever been on the boats. I was difficult to swallow, but it was how things were. But the other thing I learned was... Bill, lifers weren't so bad. 
I was working among them, and, and, and I, I got along in that environment, and it was working, even though they weren't me and I wasn't them. And uh, so I wound up working for the uh, a directorate on the NAV4V staff, and I wound up meeting Admiral Zumo. And, so, then, and then after that, we get to the 80s in the interview. I think we, we, we fast forward a little bit and start to talk about you know, uh, into the maritime strategy and also you were in Berlin. So there's a lot of things you, you finally get to DC. And when you start thinking about maritime strategy, when you start developing thoughts about strategy, is it in Vietnam and it grows and you realize that you're going to be really good, not just as a staff officer, but specifically as, as I read through a lot of your stuff in the Navy and CNA, uh, it's that you had a maritime strategy mind that you were developing. And how, how did that after zoom coming into the eighties, how did you find yourself matriculating that way? And you, much to your surprise, the Navy promoted you. Right, right. Yes. Well, there are, yeah, 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 every, yeah. every promotion was yeah. a surprise. And, uh, but the, the first, the promotion from lieutenant to lieutenant commander was, uh, was unbelievable because I had already established what I was going to do. I was going to get thrown out of the Navy uh, with a handshake. Uh, I was going to get $15,000 separation pay. I even remember the number, right? Uh, and I was going to go to law school or join the CIA. I'd pass the exams. Right. I mean, things right. were going to happen. And then I got promoted. 15,000 went away. Uh, I was going to get a handshake and that was all. And I was going to have to stay where I was for four years. Anyway, that all got worked out. And uh, thanks to my boss at the time, who was a, a very, very savvy uh, guy as to what I should do, uh, named Steve Van Westendorp, a retired Navy captain still uh, alive down in uh, North Carolina, who uh, uh, we still correspond with. Um, anyway, so I went back to something called Op 60 in the Pentagon. And I found a whole bunch of guys that understood the same stuff that I had understood from graduate school and that I'd been passionate about at Brown and at SICE, except they were Navy officers. And they'd been to Fletcher or the University of Washington or Harvard or Holy Cross or someplace like that. And they were my people and they understood international relations as it applied to the Navy and the Navy as it applied to international relations except they also flew airplanes and drove ships and drove submarines, which is something that so far I hadn't done. And I probably wasn't going to do now that I'm a lieutenant commander. And I was fascinated by the community of people that I was working with. Um, and I named some of them in the, uh, I, I named the ones that, that made flag in there, but uh, more importantly, probably those that didn't make flag and that were extremely impressive people to work with. Uh, Roger Barnett, my, uh, my, my mentor, uh, in Op 60, and many of the many of the other folks that I worked with. Well, you anyway, mentioned Tom Marfiak, who's Tom a former Marfiak. CEO well, he, of the Naval Institute. And he, he of course, uh, went on to, to, to flag rank. Anyway, so there were all these guys that were good at what I was doing. And I this was the time of the Carter administration. And the Carter administration said, you know, the Navy's got all these aircraft carriers and all these fast attack submarines and all this and that and the other. And we don't understand what that's all about because all we need them for is convoy escort across the Atlantic. And uh, you don't need all that other stuff. We ought to not build any more carriers and throttle back on building everything else and plus up the Army. And my colleagues, who at that time were lieutenant commanders like Jim Stark and myself and, and uh, uh, others at Phil Durr and others that I was working with, Commander then, Hank Maws and so on, said, but that's crap. We can make a real contribution to a NATO war, which is what had, you know, the, the, the planning metric had changed in the United States military. And instead of looking at the Vietnams of the world, we were looking at 
the Soviets in Europe and in Asia. Hmm. Um, and uh, they said, no, it's all about defending Germany. And we, we were going, Germany? Germany's one country, and it's an ally, and it's an important guy to defend. But who the hell's defending Norway, Denmark, Iceland, the UK, Japan, South Korea, right? And who's taking care of the sea lines of communication in the Pacific? And Nixon just went to China. Well, gee, who's trying to keep the Chinese on our side against the Soviets? Well, it's the Navy. It's not a whole bunch of tanks sitting in the Fulda Gap. So... But the Carter administration didn't care. We really took our lumps. And Captain, then, Ace Lyons, uh, became one of the major conceptualizers and thinkers on the Navy staff at that time. And all of the people I named, we all wound up working for him in one guise or another. And um, uh, thinking about what we would do and how we would do it, that all started in a period in which we weren't allowed to write about it, think about it, talk about it in a joint environment. I went off to school again. By, by then, I was a member of a, as I discovered, a community that the Navy had then of political, military, strategic planning subspecialists, an informal community, uh, but a community nevertheless. Uh, Captain Lyons that I just mentioned, had already he was like on his third tour within OPPO 6. Uh, and he was destined, of course, for three more tours in OPPO 6, but we didn't know that at the time. Uh, the admirals that we worked with, uh, four, uh, Joe Mura, Bill Crow, they'd had successive tours in the organization. And they, they were grooming us to be the next generation, captains and, and, and uh, commanders and, uh, and admirals of, of Navy political military specialists, except we weren't being listened to. And they decided to send me off to school, and I went to Columbia for a couple of years. And Twee and I went to live in New York and, uh, with our two kids. And then when I came back, Ronald Reagan was in the White House. You were back in the Pentagon. Back in the Pentagon. When I was back. back. Oh, and, but, and so the idea was I would have a back-to-back -back tour. I would come back to where I had just left. Which today you could – we talked about this in the interview, yeah. right? That's that's something that you – that continuity is almost impossible maybe. Almost today. impossible. And let's talk about the, – the workaround is we, we hire contractors and we uh, – the Navy does. The Navy hires contractors um, who are in fact retired Navy officers or former Navy officers. And that's how they get the expertise recycled that With way. With an op-nav, okay. Um, but it's not the, the, the straight-line Navy that, that, that we were part of. Anyway, so Reagan is uh, the president. Lehman is the Secretary of the Navy, and they've said, yep, carriers to defend Norway, yep, submarines in the Arctic, right? We're all for all of that, and we're going to give you more of them. The problem with you guys, though, you guys meaning the Navy, blue suitors, is you don't know how to – it's all about strategy, and you don't know strategy. And we're going, huh? We got beaten up for our strategic thought back in the other administration, and now this administration is beating us up for not knowing how to do something. We know how to do this. And uh, Admiral Art Moreau, Captain Roger Barnett, took, and, and some other guys, I, I guess I, I don't, I'm not going to get the sequence right, but uh, and Admiral Bill Small, the VCNO, directed the office I was in, two guys, Lieutenant Commander Stan Weeks, Commander... Spence Johnson, write me a maritime strategy that'll get the secretary off my back and that will explain what it is that the Navy is about. So they did, with some help from the rest of us in the office. And uh, it won prizes. Even, even Lehman liked it. 
except it needed this and it needed that and it needed the other thing. And uh, Admiral Moreau had a whole laundry list of things that he wanted done to it. And Stan and, and Spence rolled and went to see billets. And then it was Roger and my turn. And standing on, to use Colin Powell's phrase, uh, standing on Stan and, uh, and Spence's shoulders, we built the second version of the Maritime Strategy that fixed as many as we could of all of the holes and other things that people had critiqued it about. Well, can I stop you real quick, Peter? This is yep. an important question. And because one of the five books you list in the interview that I asked you what your five kind of books yeah. that any of us should read is Captain Peter Haynes' book uh, on kind of the evolution of maritime strategy. And he covers a lot of ground in the 80s. What was one of the most contentious things that you recall having to, to, to work through to make a strategy that's largely considered successful, I think, by historians? And as I think Peter says in the book, right, I mean, I think it's something that was widely acknowledged as a good strategy. But, of course, that didn't come without friction, as Peter Haynes talks in his book um, many times where there's contention between the services uh, and between, frankly, even the OPNAV staff. What, what was your experience? What was that in your, in your memory? Well, there were – okay. So, first of all, there were many issues. I mean, one I've already alluded to was it's all about Germany versus, no, we've got a lot of other allies besides Germany. Right. Um, others were, hey, it's all about convoy escort when we thought that what ought to be – you ought to use naval forces as – an offensive global weapon using the carriers, the the uh, the uh, the submarines, and of course what was about to happen to the surface navy with Tomahawk, Aegis, and VLS hadn't happened yet, but it was yeah. we were right on the cusp of it. Um, but the thing that really comes to mind in response to your and mm-hmm. there were many, I mean there were a hundred issues. I mean right. what to do about mobilizing the reserves and and were they going to go? Uh, did the plans have them going to the right places and doing the right things? There were there were a hundred issues. But one that really sticks in my mind had to do with the Soviets, because at this, and you're an intelligence officer, so you'll appreciate this. Um, at the same time this was happening, early days of the Reagan administration, John Lehman is Secretary of the Navy, a group of guys at CNA who'd been preaching for years that the Soviets were largely defensively oriented and minded and were interested mostly in protecting their boomers and weren't going to come out to sever the sea lines of communication. So convoy escort was wasteful and stupid and who were poo-pooed by the U.S. intelligence uh, uh, establishment, including Navy intelligence, which considered them heretical because under the Carter administration, all the Navy had was the slot protection. And if that wasn't around, then you might, then the whole Navy ought to fold up. This was Soviet bastion defense. Soviet yeah. bastion defense. Yeah. But the only guys that were preaching this at that time were a bunch of brilliant guys at CNA. Right? Um, and then suddenly the Navy got a whole raft of uh, highly sensitive, highly classified, still highly classified intelligence at very, very high levels that I wasn't uh, cleared to, to know about the sources of um, that said, yep, guys at CNA are right. That's exactly how the Soviets are going to do it. And how we, and then the intel community, once they turned, they had to turn around to the operators and convince the operators that that was what the Soviets were going to do and how they were going to do it. And therefore we should posture. uh, And then how do you fit the changing view of the Soviet Navy and the changing view of the Soviet Navy by the intel, the Navy intelligence establishment and the Navy operators into this strategy that were, so we were painting several moving trains at the same time. So that's probably as an issue, and it's it's not an un uh, it's not an unimportant issue today. And, and this, to be clear for the audience, this wasn't just exquisite intelligence because you wrote this one of your lengthy CNA pieces. It's not just the exquisite intelligence; it was the 
unclassified Gorshkov doctrine, things that were written in Soviet in uh, you know, in in that language that you know that was then translated and used as well in in, in with that exquisite intelligence, as I recall yeah. it being. So that's it. That's exactly right. And yeah. and the point to be made there is that. The in the the CI the CNA guys were using open sources, Russian open sources, and poo pooed for that. And it turned out that the Russian open sources, for the very reasons that they had already ar- right. always argued, turned out to be the most accurate place to go for your stuff. And uh, so it became also an issue of tradecraft among the intelligence community as to how important were open sources and which were important and which ones would you read and so on. So that was a very important issue and, again, one that continues today. And for, um, for our listeners, uh, CNA is the Center for Naval Analysis, where Peter worked following his uh, active duty career. Yeah. And so so we were up into the 80s now. You're working on a maritime strategy. You're working for Secretary Lehman. And, and I believe you helped uh, with his first book. And I thought there was a hilarious anecdote. I don't think it made the, the, the magazine, which is he misspelled your name oh, as yeah. acknowledgments <laughs> on his first book. But that was re- corrected for, I believe, Ocean, Ocean yeah. Ventured, if I correct the title right, on the yeah. um, second book. Is that if, I, if that's a true story, I believe. Uh, that that is a truth. I got a call one. I was uh, when I was done with with maritime strategy work, uh, and uh, I was uh, I was in uh, Brussels. Uh, my friend Commander Hank Moaz, who later became Four Star Admiral Hank Moaz, had said, "You know, one day you ought to go to Brussels and have a job in defense operations, like I had." And so I did. So off we and I and the kids went to Brussels. We put our kids in Belgian schools, so they were French and Flemish literate and uh, and fluent. And uh, I was in uh, Brussels when the wall came down. Um, but uh, the, 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 the point you asked, so I'm in Brussels as the director of defense operations at the U.S. mission to NATO, and I get a call from Dave Baker. He's retired now down in uh, Williamsburg, but he called me up and he said, Peter, John Lehman's book is out. And I got good news and bad news. So he said, the good news is you're in it many times. I said, Okay. Uh, what's the bad news? He said, he spelled your name wrong. <laughs> I said, Dave, that's good news. It means that while he thought well of me and knew who I was and valued some things I did, we weren't cronies or good buds or anything like that. And, uh, and this, this is all fine. This is all okay. Um, and I, I had an off and on continued relationship with both Admiral Zumwalt and um, uh, Admiral uh, and uh, Secretary Lehman after they left office. I was restricted to five books to ask you, and because I'm a bit of a bibliophile, I love to read, and as hopefully many intelligence officers do, and naval officers, in fact. Would you expand upon that list at all? When you know, uh, would it be more than five? And uh, of the ones we mentioned, I know <laughs> Albert Nofi's book mentioned Peter Haynes's book, which is on kind of the evolution of maritime strategy. We've had any others that come to mind that you, you would like to tell the audience about that you think are valuable reading uh, for naval officers today? Yes. I happen to have a shameless plug for two books that I reviewed in the May issue, the same issue that I was I, that, that your interview is for. And that is Trent Hone's book and um, uh, Scott Mobley's book on uh, professionalism and um, uh, progressivism and the U.S. Navy. Uh, and that term, progressivism, is going gonna, is gonna to turn off a naval officer from opening a book that's, that's really important, uh, and he should open, or she should open, uh, about how the Navy changed from a 
seamanship-oriented cruising navy of the 19th century into a fleet-oriented navy of the 20th century, and the intellectual roots of all of the strategy that I wound up working on, and how it goes back all the way to the 80s and 70s and the period that Scott Mobley was writing about. Anyway, there's a, there's a review of those two books. Um, they're, uh, uh, they're books for specialists. They're not an introduction to the 19th century or an introduction to the interwar. Uh, I think Trent and Tom Hone's book uh, on the uh, interwar period is the introduction. But they're, if you're interested in the Navy and the officer corps as a learning organization, yeah. if you're a staff officer working for Admiral uh, the, C the CNO, Admiral Richardson, or the VCNO, soon to be the CNO, we hope, uh, Admiral, uh, uh, Admiral Moran, uh, these are books that are worthwhile uh, mining uh, for precedence uh, for the uh, for the Navy of today and tomorrow. So we'll remind the audience and our regular podcast listeners that we've had both Trent and Scott on the podcast talking about each of those books. Um, so if you look, I can't recall the exact episode number, but if you look back um, on the SoundCloud page or on the Naval Institute's podcast page, you can find those episodes and uh, entreat you to listen to those conversations if you haven't uh, already for the reasons Peter uh, just mentioned. And so, Tr Trent was the Naval Institute's author of the year, uh, book author of the year. Yep. So let me just make one other point about that, and that is that um, when I was in graduate school, and you'll notice I was in graduate school twice, once at SICE and once at Columbia, and these are reputable graduate schools with crackerjack programs, and I learned a lot. National Defense Studies which was all the rage, was all about the nuclear balance and the folder gap. And nobody in, the, in academia was studying the Navy. I didn't learn about the existence of J.C. Wiley and his book about strategy until after I came back into the Navy um, and discovered that. And one of the things I set for myself to do, and my colleagues did the same, because you don't do any of this yourself, you, you need colleagues and shipmates, um, is to create and to disseminate and to push a literature about Navy strategy. When Pete Haynes came to me and said, I want to write a dissertation, and what do you think it ought to be about, and what do you think we ought to put in it, he was pushing on an open door. Um, when Steve Wills uh, came to me and said something similar about his dissertation, which hopefully will be, yield a book about the Navy and the Goldwater-Nichols Act, he was pushing on an open door. And uh, foreign colleague um, were working on their books um, I've gone out of my way to help on these books. Uh, why? Because I want to make sure that there's a literature out there that future generations will be able to use and that they can point to. And maybe even the professors at SICE and at Columbia would even become familiar with and, and deign to open uh, about Navy strategy and Navy policy. So I guess to piggyback on that question then, so a new CNO coming here shortly with uh, Admiral Moran, um, what advice would you give to the strategists that are the young Peters working for him in OPNAV uh, to to take strategy forward as it is today, design 2.0, distributed maritime operations, and all those things that we've been working for in this Navy for, you know, Admiral Richardson now for the past three to four years and coming to, to, to transition, if you would. What, what advice would you give to them? Well, all right. So this is very pointed because the advisor that I would be giving the advice to would be obviously Vice Admiral Munch, um, who's the Fair acting enough. or the or the N3, N5, and he's somebody who I've been giving advice to, not that he's taken uh, it uh, uh, consistently uh, over the years as he's uh, as he's grown and developed. And the advice would be 
first of all, the bottom line, strategy matters. Um, Lehman understood that. Um, if you didn't have a strategy, then why the hell were you doing it? And how were you going to argue your case uh, to anybody? The enemy, uh, the other services, the joint system, the Congress, uh, the Bureau, uh, the, the Office of Management and Budget, um, you needed a strategy. Um, if Admiral Moran is content with the strategy, which is a classified strategy, which is out, uh, but we don't talk about a great deal because it is classified. If he's content with the strategy as it is, um, then he should make sure that everybody knows that uh, and he should repeat it, uh, get his name on it as well, uh, and push it out uh, and use it and reference it as a signal and also as a weapon. Um, if he's not happy with it, he should get some people on board and change it right away. He should not wait, as I've documented, that previous CNOs have had to do for various reasons, four years until he finally gets his strategy statement out, you know, six months before his, his relief is coming on board. That's not a good way to do it. Um, so right away, he should make up his mind, A, to put strategy up at the top of his agenda, B, that uh, he's got to figure out what he thinks about the current Navy strategy, uh, and then see, do something about it, either reinforce the strategy he's got or come up with something that's, uh, that's, that's new and different in accordance with the national policy and the national strategy. And none, none of this that I've been discussing is outside, should ever be outside the, the, uh, the framework of the national security strategy of the country. This is not the advocacy of a Navy go-it-alone strategy. This is an advocacy of a Navy component to a national military strategy, um, that's a legitimate thing for the Navy to seek and want, despite no Goldwater Nichols. Uh, if you've got to organize, train, and equip naval forces, which are different from ground forces and different from land-based air forces, um, then what are the what are the principles? What are the what what are the goals and objectives you got? Who's the threats that you're organizing, training, and equip against? Um, yes, it's the guys that are going to fight the war. It's a joint system, um, but you could wind up, for example. Carter administration, uh, if you, all you were doing were organizing, training, and equipping, you'd be organizing, training, and equipping, I don't know, a couple hundred frigates to be able to escort convoys that were not going to get attacked across the North Atlantic. Uh, that would be a bad organized, train, and equip policy. Uh, and the policies for the Navy should be driven by strategy. And I thought, of course, I'm, I'm prejudiced, that, uh, that what they were driven by in the 80s was correct. Offensive operations by the carrier force and lots and lots of cover and deception. Uh, so it's in the May issue. It's called A Naval Strategist Speaks. It's an interview by Commander Christopher Nelson of Captain Peter Schwartz, who you've heard here today. Gentlemen, thank you very much for coming by the Proceedings Podcast today. Uh, Appreciate thanks. it. Thanks, Ward. Thanks, Thank you for and inviting me. Uh, what you're hearing in the background is a massive thunderstorm, <laughs> so we uh, apologize if that's been disruptive for, uh, for you with the high-fidelity um, audio gear. But we'll see everybody next week. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. The Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the Bell 407 GXI, a helicopter bringing advanced training technology, best value in life cycle sustainability to the next generation of naval aviators. See the Bell 407 GXI in action at Navy League Sea Air Space, booth 2623.